Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, host of this show and executive editor of Emergence Magazine, located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people in present-day Marin County. Each week, we feature interviews, stories, poetry, and author-narrated essays exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Dazzled by the quick gratification and hyper-individualized nature of consumer culture, we are often confined to thinking in insular and short-term ways, disregarding our relationships with both humans and more than humans alike. Our tools, things like time, technology, data, science, tend to be myopic and disposable, operating in a vacuum. But what would it mean to think, create, and innovate from a space that considers all the ways we are entangled? How can we increase our sense of relational obligation to include the beings around us and future generations? What might transform if we began to operate from a place of deep time diligence? This week, I'm joined by Tyson Young Caporta, an Aboriginal scholar and author who belongs to the Appalachian clan in far north Queensland, Australia. Speaking to me from his home on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne, Tyson invites us on an adventure into Indigenous thinking, from the entwinement of time and place to the ways lore and knowledge are kept within lands and tribes. As he emphasizes how important it is that story data and technology emerge from a place of right relationship, Tyson explores, with the same candor and humor that tempers his books, how we can usher in new systems of order amid the chaos of the current moment. Tyson, welcome. It's uh, nice to be in conversation with you today. Hey, how you going? As I think you know, time is a, a theme we're exploring at Emergence uh, this coming year. And and this seems to be a subject that comes up often in your work, both in your previous book, Sand Talk, and your new book, Right Story, Wrong Story. And I remember when I read Sand Talk being struck by how you described the futility of trying to explain Aboriginal notions of time in English, mm. where it is often described as nonlinear, which is not only a simplification of the Aboriginal notion of time, but only describes the concept by what it's not, rather than what it is. And that there isn't even a word for nonlinear in Aboriginal languages. Yeah. That's strange, huh? <laughs> um, yeah, we don't have words for those things. So it's it's weird with uh, languages where if you don't have words for things, then you know in that culture, in the root culture, there's no utility for these things. Um, but also cultures are always evolving. So we pick these things up, but it takes a while, you know, um, so there's no abstract nouns at all in Wickmonkin, which is the language I speak. Um, so it's really tricky, but the thing about time is that there's not a discrete word for just time, you know, time is always the same as place. Right. And you talk about that in, in, uh, in right story, wrong story. Yeah. If you're asking like you know, um, what time something is going to happen. You use the word for place and you say, what place? And so it's, uh, I don't know, it's not confusing when you speak in the language, but it's confusing when you try and explain it to other people. 
because they haven't got any frame of reference for you. You haven't got any frame of reference for them, and it's all just a muddle. <clears throat> but I guess that's like, that's what the world's like. And it's just an interesting time now because everybody's speaking a different language from their own epistemology, from their own ways of knowing that they've gotten confused with their ontology, their ways of being. They sort of mixed these things up and everybody's clamoring, speaking all at once from these things and demanding to be heard, aka understood, aka someone's going to stand in my shoes. But not you, you can't have my shoes. <laughs> it's all really weird. People are in bad relation. So um, that's the thing, brothers. That's what we can talk about next 45 minutes. And the big theme is how do we bring ourselves and the world back into right relation? um before it's mm. too late well not before it's too late after mm. it's too late now that it's too late how do we bring everybody back into the right relation <laughs> yeah well, do you think it's too late tyson i mean this is a question i was going to ask you later on in the interview it's too late to return to any kind of homeostasis with the systems that we have now which are on their last legs it's too late to to reset or stabilize the global systems. And I'm talking, uh, you know, uh, climate, the biosphere, everything that people regard as natural. And that's another thing we don't have is this distinction between natural and unnatural. So, you know, nature for us is just everything that is. So that includes, you know, economic systems, you know, supply chains, all these things are nature as well. So you look at those and it's the same thing, you know, it's some, um, because as the biosphere sort of breaks down, the biota like uh, breaks down and, and gets in increasingly like uh, chaotic states, it, it will tend towards towards order again, but it won't be the same order. New systems will emerge, and that's kind of you've got to be excited about that. You know, if you're looking at the big story, big picture arc of the world, it's not coming back what there was before. It's not going to be held, able to be held on to what we have now. Um, we are in for a rocky ride. Mm. And I guess we will look at what emerges from there and from that and then figure out how we come into right relation there, you know, in order to hopefully retain some kind of role in the next system that emerges globally. Mm. Uh, because mm. if we can't retain the role of custodians, then, um, well, I mean, we're going to have to, humbly submit to um you know porcupines or <laughs> whoever it is that takes over well when well, coming back into right relationship which is what you explore in right story wrong story in depth uh you, you know you talk about time and place and you talk about these different systems of indigenous knowledge which can be of use in i guess bridging between now and the future um and and this relationship to place and time seems to be a central one of those. As you said, there's no distinction there between those terms and in your language. Obviously, in English, there is. Uh, maybe that distinction is, is, is part of this challenge. Well, some of us grappling with this, um, uh, we, we start, I mean, we started changing the language, you know, and have this sort of uh, different code, you know, that tries to make English do what our language does but more because there's this kind of self-consciousness of it within it so the new english terms we, we sort of hyphenate words and jam them together like um um our place time we talk about 
oh, I'm in this place time or in that place time. And we're talking about a seasonal moment, you know, but in a particular regional location, et cetera, you know, we, we cobble these together. And, and even the idea of pronouns, you know, because there's pronouns in our languages that don't exist in English. Is like, so there's not just us, but there's us too, us only, us all, et cetera, like that. You know, we put these together, but they're kind of self-conscious in a way that they're put together, you know, in the fact that they were needed to be put together in this way. You see that they're trying to describe something um, that that is not understood by by the decoder of of the word it's kind of in in it you can see that self-consciousness so anyway there's a few of us trying to put that together and place time time place you know we're, we're like hyphenating words and and starting to use those instead because it kind of demands of people if you're asking them what time something happens it demands that people are thinking about the place where they are and what's going to be going mm -hmm. on there mm -hmm. see we we stuffed this up we messed this up bros because we, we didn't think about things relationally when we booked this interview. We, we booked that one for 10 a.m. 10 a.m. is perfect because I finished dropping the kids off at school and, you know, or setting them up and taking care of them, getting them all ready. Uh, one of them was autistic, one of them was ADHD, so it's a big mess. And that would give me like half an hour to sit down, prepare, get ready, get in the right headspace. But we booked it for that time place, not for this time place. For this time place... Like the day before yesterday, uh, daylight savings started. And so all the clocks went back an hour. So this morning I wake up into the middle of a nightmare where I'm, I have to set up for this interview at 9 a.m. and I haven't organized that. Things have shifted on the calendar where the calendar a week ago said 10 a.m. Now it says 9 a.m. And I've got to try and get somebody to take the kids to school and then someone to uh, look after the little fella who's like – you know, an autistic six-year-old is is like the size and strength of a pit bull, you know, and and who is very hard to manage. I gotta like at the last minute set that up. So we didn't we didn't organize. We booked according to time, and and time is bullshit because time doesn't account for all your relations with human and non-human. It doesn't account for your relationship with seasons and even with the broader systems of civilization, like um you know, clocks and calendars and different time zones and changing time zones seasonally. Um, yeah, we didn't think about that. We just thought about, hey, yeah, we want to talk and we can click this I, blue. We can, I can click this blue square on the calendar and it'll all be taken care of. Well, it won't because we didn't think about time place. <laughs> right. Time's an imposition in that context. And it's not um, time space like, like Einstein, you know, it's, it's time place. Because place has meaning, you know, and place is specific. Place is specific um, seasonally and regionally and in a million ways. And it has story and it has meaning, you know, all the special places. Mm. It has your maps of meaning on it, you know, your travel routes and, and what they mean to you and how you store your knowledge in that. Like every human being's got that. You know, even the worst people in the world still have a remnant of, you know, I don't care if you're like, your ancestors going back 10 generations been living in cities or towns like you still got that you know, that doesn't go away because that's what human beings are yeah. we're like i i'm located therefore i am when i was researching for the conversation with you today i i came across a, a conversation i think you had online a while ago about deep time and you were speaking about 
the relationship between time and place, kind of bringing up some of the things you've just shared. And, and you said that as beings, we are in processes, in a landscape that is a process as well. And that there are these cycles of time that are part of these processes, that there are lots of circles running at once, everything is going. Um, and I was really struck by that. And it, it seems to echo what you just talked about, that there are these processes interlocking that are in relationship to place and not part of some sort of imposed construct. Mm, it's weird, eh? Object permanence is like, uh, it becomes a bit of a problem when you self-apply it inwardly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, it's really tricky. Look, this is this is part of this sort of childish fascination. People don't really get past it in young cultures. There's this, this terror of the moment that you figure out that you're going to die one day and that everybody around you is going to die. It's a really hard thing to deal with for a little while, you know. But usually we have initiations at around the age of 14, 13 as human beings mm. that get us past that, um, that, you know, make us go into that fear and then, and then find out and realize why that's not a problem, you know, in the cosmic order of things. Mm. Yeah. So that, that's the problem there, I, I believe. We want systems to remain stable and as they are forever. Uh, and they just don't. And, you know, that's what emergence is. You know, emergence is systems break down, they undergo phase shifts. And during those phase shifts, like uh, new systemic orders and dynamic relational sets emerge, you know, within these systems. Uh, you end up with these forces of destruction, you know, rampaging around the system, but then that gives rise to other things that, that balance that out and gradually are uh, supposed to bring bring things into a state of stability. Mm. And one of the things you talk about a lot in the book is um, technology and how that relates to, you know, deep time and uh, many other things. And you spoke about how Technology consistently butts up against deep time, whereas traditional ecological knowledge doesn't, in part because design and innovation often doesn't emerge from that place of right relationship or right story, which you're talking about. I wonder if you could speak to this. Yeah. Well, that's that's the idea of T-E-K, like traditional ecological knowledge. You know, most groups of humans have. So it's tech in that way. But then there's tech that's T-E-C-H, you know, um, technology. You see, that... That's a weird thing. So at the same time as there's this desire to maintain system stability indefinitely, there's also this, this insane need to make things better. But in this industrial civilization, that idea is through tech, T-E-C-H, you know, um, that improvements can be made rapidly and that it needs to be constantly updated and constantly improving because the innovations that you create break down really fast. And so they need to be replaced. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's the same as the economic system. You know, you need constant growth in order for it to even function. Uh, otherwise, you know, things fall into recessions and depressions and all the rest. So in a sort of a tech-driven, you know, T-E-C-H, um, you don't have that relational accountability of T-E-K, which demands, T-E-K demands that any new innovations have to be accompanied by um, uh, an appropriate and effective uh, social or psychological technology 
that comes with the physical technology that can ensure that that new tech it can never be weaponized and scaled <laughs> to destroy the entire society and all that environment or bioregion or whatever. So traditional ecological knowledge makes sure there's a psychotechnology and good law, good story that can be permanent and that can ensure that thing is never going to wreck everything. Uh, sometimes it's an affordance that's built into the tech itself to limit it, which is a really weird thing about indigenous technology. Like in our culture, we have these massive swords that are made out of sawfish blades. You know, uh, they're, they're huge and bristling with these teeth sticking out of these massive sword. You could cut a man in half with that. But there's a tiny little three-inch handle on it. <laughs> and that's the affordance that's built in that can allow you to have a spectacular battle but you probably couldn't kill more than one person with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but it's not a massive sort of massacre ever. That's how we like stop imperialisms from happening. It's all built in affordances into our tech, you know? So that's the idea of making things sustainable, making things last for a bit longer than they otherwise would. Right. So that traditional ecological knowledge only allows you to scale within the limits of your relational obligations. That's it. So you're not you're not hastening, you know, the big phase shifts or or deaths of a system. You know, you're not doing that because you're a custodian. You're supposed to maintain it as it is for as long as it's supposed to be maintained. Well, you talk about the the need for deep time diligence in your book, um, and the question of whether we can innovate from a place that is in relationship to deep time and what possibilities such innovations would open up. And this seems especially needed, you know as the climate is shifting and everything's changing. And yet it's often uh, not even secondary, it's tertiary at best um, in, 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 in the forefront of these, these innovative ideas that people put forward to try to respond to what's happening. Mm. I, um, I think I put a disclaimer in there or a caveat right, that there's a difference between uh, a deep time diligence and um, prophecy. <laughs> How would you describe the difference? Um, well, I think, well, for a start, prophecy is bullshit. You know, um, deep time diligence is sort of looking at all the systems and the trajectories of these things and doing, you know, uh, catastrophic risk analysis, doing all these kinds of things, uh, doing these things collectively. So as a group, everybody's out there observing what's happening in nature and what's happening in your economic systems and communities. And we keep coming together and everybody's bringing a different data set, you know, and some of these overlap, some of them are contradictory, but in the aggregate, we get a sense together with that one big brain, the computational power of a group of people together, you know, big community together doing all this work that, that works. That's deep time diligence. Because, you know, you start building the stories that you need and the law that you need and the um, the knowledge that you need for the system as it's shifting. And, you know, you make sure that you're moving, you know, where where it's going to be, where the, where the authority is going to be, where the um, livability is going to be and how it's going to be. You're constantly shifting towards that while you're testing, testing the water, testing the water, testing the water the whole time, uh, just ahead of you. Like, you know, when you got a stick in a stream and you got that stick ahead of you and you're testing the depth, kind of like that. 
Whereas a prophecy is like standing on the <laughs> on the riverbank and saying, there is a giant hole in the middle of the river right there. I can divine it with my special magics. And at the bottom, there is a troll protecting a pile of diamonds. I, You know, prophecy is, is, is game and it's rubbish, you know. Well, going back to psychotechnology as a story, which is something you talk about, um, I really loved how you described the way that we have to store data safely in the long term and how that's through relationships. And in some ways, it's really simple and essential when you when you hear that. But it also seems completely revolutionary in our current tech era and how we conceive of data and its role in the future. You, you wrote that the key to keeping track of stable innovation processes across multiple generations is story. You said, I love this quote, that can be more creative than a Cambrian explosion or more destructive than a nuclear one. Story that maintains the continuity of creation requires a lot more work and it develops over time from thousands of data sets held in relationships. Yep. So... Like we, we've got uh, a couple of different things in place to, to back up this this yarn that we're having this, you know, the digital data that's created from this yarn. We've got a couple of different things in place to back it up, um, but it'll be gone. Like I, I'd say that, like in a, a few decades, this won't exist anymore. Data is constantly deteriorating. You know, systems are changing because right. the T. E-C-H tech, because this is moving so fast and there's obsolescence cycles that are just tighter and tighter all the time, data is vulnerable. Data just disappears. Um, all your photos in photo bucket, how long are they going to be there for? Someone going just going to maintain that server forever like and maintain the costs for that and keep losing money? Nah. So the only way to store data long-term like proper long-term is in intergenerational relationships, you know, where data is stored in narratives, intergenerational narratives that can last for 40, 50, 60,000 years. You know, that can last like just as long as there are relations continued, you know, um, that data will last. It's the only safe way to store data in the long-term. And like you say, a revolutionary idea it probably is you know i i didn't think of it like that when i wrote it, it it's true mm. though eh? i guess true that's the only way to store data in the long term well, well there were a lot of interesting notions that that stuck out to me in in right story wrong story and this one uh, really hit me which was you talked about how every viewpoint um is ignorant really in one way or another but that combined over time or in right relation with and across generations, as you were previously speaking about, that these diverse ignorances create right story, that all those weaknesses together form something that's very, very strong that can stand the test of time. Because collectively, if you imagine it, you've got all these little story particles banging together in this big collider. So they're testing each other on each other, but in this big complex kind of mess. Um, and order emerges over time mm. in there. Everybody's sharing their different ignorances. Your ignorance is only from the fact that, you know, you have a valid data set, but it's only from one standpoint. Mm -hmm. But you get all the multiple standpoints and you start to form a picture. You know, you've got all these different data points, you know, coming back in and it's computed, like you've got dark data processing happening uh at this big collective level with this big the best computation mechanism ever you know because the human brain's pretty good but like you get like 20 30 
150 of those brains together, sharing stories, sharing data sets, and then all of these things just kind of moving and shaping together. Something is emergent, you know, principles, laws, story, like narrative, binding all these together. That's why myth works so well. That's why myth is so evocative uh, and so enduring, you know. It's because it's like, you know, all these diverse ignorances coming together <laughs> and truth emerging from that, from all those different data yeah. sets. Because the ignorance is just that, you know, you've only analyzed it from one point of view. But collectively, collective analysis, oh, that's amazing. You know, right. that's that's right. the only way it can be done. But but you write about wrong story also as this other, you know, piece of all this. Um which you say is unilateral and immediate. It does not stand the test of time. It does not um, evolve from these collective data sets to be something that is correct or right or can help create a story that allows people to be part of something in the long term. Um, it's deployed as something as disruptive as, you know, as you, you talk about propaganda, disinformation, dating app profiles, you give us all these examples that dominate and obscure the many voices that make up right story. Nice. Well, <laughs> I forgot that I wrote that. But you, so you think about all these diverse ignorances all coming together, you know, to create, you know, right story, to create, you know, something sublime, uh, to get an idea of a reality. Because your ontology, like what is real, is reflected back then to you. Okay. But then you look at wrong story. Uh, wrong story is where, you know, instead of all these diverse ignorances coming together to make truth, uh, in reality, instead of that, it's like a small cluster of those ignorances or just one tiny data point of that ignorance, you know, mm -hmm. decides I am truth. I am right. And I'm going to insist that just this point of view is the right one. And I'm going to recruit as many people as possible. And together, we're going to create a compelling narrative, usually a spiritual narrative straight away. You know, we're just going to draw on you know, mythological tropes from right story everywhere. We're going to draw on even proper facts. You can fact check this. Every fact's going to be true, but we're going to selectively pick those facts and make them fit this narrative. And then we're going to project it and we're going to insist on it. We're going to die on that hill and we're going to insist that everybody follow this narrative, you know, to the death. <laughs> and that's what we're up against. That's, that's your wrong story. Uh, it's, it's really powerful because it's, um, because it's incredibly ignorant and it's a way that a minority can subvert and control the majority. It's a brilliant mm. leverage point. It's a brilliant psychotechnology. It's probably, probably the most brilliant invention ever made the wrong story. Because story is so powerful. A story can heal story can kill. Uh, right story is clunky and it takes time because it's supposed to take time. Well, I actually found myself really taken by the simplicity of some of the ideas that you're putting forward in, in the context of a very complex system that doesn't like simplicity and says simplicity is bad. And, you know, one of the things you talk about is the power of memory. And there was something that really stuck with me. You talk about how um, cultural knowledge of a region is not just maintained or contained in a tribe's living memory and sentient landscape, but is also in an enormous continental permanent ledger in which each place keeps the lore of other places and this expansive notion of memory. And in the context of time, place, again, yeah. this seems like an oh, important Oh, that, that's point. that big, um, 
you know, governance model of like all this sort of nested fractal, um, you know, relations and connections of authority that kind of, um, you know, they scale up from every pair, you know, to every, you know, um, every pair of individuals to every pair of clan groups, uh, you know, and then to every, you know, four clan groups then pairing off against each other. And that's a tribe and then every pair of tribes and then, all of those coming together and forming a region and then every pair of regions. And, and so it keeps fractally scaling up, you know, so that's our, that's our governance model there. And, um, and that, that's kind of beautiful. And within that there's law, mm. L-A-W-N and there's L-O-R-E and law is like, it's almost like a physical substance in the land. It's a permanent ledger, you know, where the laws are, they are inalienable and well, they last as long as landforms last. You know, so they're not permanent, but they they last for a pretty damn long time. <laughs> right. You said uh, you said the system makes our cultures anti-fragile and acts as a kind of insurance against disasters. The lower, therefore, the law of any culture can always be restored. And it, it, I don't know. I felt like it's like a time capsule insurance for the future. Because there's volcanoes and shit changes. You know, there's earthquakes. There's um. There are, you know, rising sea level events that happen and, and there are tsunamis, mm. like shit happens. Sometimes there's a red tide. So, you know, everyone's eating fish for a couple of weeks out of the sea and they don't know that they're <laughs> they're eating that that they're all they've all consumed a poison that's gonna kill every single person in the whole tribe. You know, shit like this happens. So you make sure that your law is actually kept with other tribes. So there'll be a few people in another tribe who carry all of your law and language and everything else. So if your people gets wiped out, that can be repopulated from the other tribe. And that law, mm. you know, that's necessary for caring for that landscape and that bioregion, that that's carried on there, you know. So that's that anti-fragile sort of um, permanent ledger, you know, human network that goes on. It comes back to this idea of being able to maintain a reality, like an, an actual empirical reality. You know, and th there's that there's that idea again of all those little wrong stories coming together to make a right story. You know what I mean? Like your individual viewpoint, that's not a reality. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a truth. <laughs> that's a truth for you. And if you're doing it right, then you're constantly changing that truth and amending it, you know, according to your interactions with others and other truths, you know, because that truth, that's your epistemology. And your epistemology is supposed to be a method of inquiry where you're constantly changing and updating your worldview according to the other data sets that you're coming across with, with other people's story, you know. Um, so that that's your truth, and that has to be constantly changing. But then your ontology, your ontology, that's your reality. And that's different because the reality is empirical and it's collectively discerned. You know, you need many people to help you discern that. Um, and you discern that together. That's what's real. And then, tr but truth, that's a different thing. And people mm. get those mixed up in young cultures, especially Anglophone cultures. There is a mix up between the idea of truth and reality. Truth is elevated above what mm. is real. And the person with the loudest voice and who employs the most uh, persuasive logical fallacies. Um, they can convince everybody of a truth. Uh, they can convince people that their truth is the reality. Well, you talk about the reality of what's unfolded in your cultures over the last few hundred years um, and that how 
so many uh, peoples in, in your land are prevented from implementing indigenous governance. Um, the lore that is held being put into practice is limited by the systems of oppression that surround you, um, let alone in the land, you know, the struggles there. Um, and that you said, we simply keep the lore alive in memory and ceremony and wait for a time we can begin living again. Uh, when and how do you see this happening? Because do you think it's going to be able to unfold within the systems that are currently uh, uh, present or are they going to have to fall away? Well, people like you and I, you know, we're living in uh, the wrong story of hope. <laughs> you know, I guess the only reason we're having these conversations, the only reason we're writing these books is because we're, we're hoping that there's a possibility of a soft landing, you know, a soft landing where billions won't have to die in horrible ways, uh, where children won't be harmed, where, you know, won't starve, won't burn. You know, we're all hoping for this. Um, and it's probably wrong story because mm. it's probably not possible. You know, um, you know, the probability is that, um, you know, the systems change is and, and will continue to unfold in ways that are fairly catastrophic. Um, most of the people in the world right now are, are really feeling it and are really in, they're in Armageddon and like in incredible suffering and, and upheaval and fear and death and all the rest. That's most of the people in the world. You and I don't notice it because we're living in these first world countries. You know, it's like most of the world's already burning, man. We passed the tipping point. Probably need to start putting together the cautionary tales that are going to carry everyone forward into the future and make sure this shit doesn't happen again with whatever stable system emerges from this. It probably won't emerge in nice ways. Mm. Well, you know, one of the things that comes across loud and clear in your work is your lack of love for um, the spiritualizing of indigenous wisdom and the spiritualization of a lot of things that are skin deep to say the least. He said, you're not going to find your way through this mess in drum circles and sweat lodges or any weird co-opted bits and pieces of native culture that enable spiritual bypass, chanting and vision questing and tripping balls to avoid the hard feelings that come with being authentically grounded in your shitty context. We have to look past the sexy and inspiring stuff and step up to our fear and uncertainty before we panic and turn into a seething mosh pit of fast yeah, zombies. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I, but I love this because I feel like the importance of stepping into the fear and uncertainty is at the center of the narrative that we're being asked to step into. Uh, but it's very, very disarming for people and they're holding on to the narrative of the past rather than stepping into a space of unknown as the narratives for the future the right story is saying well we have to behold what's you know unfolding around us uh we have to take stock i don't know i think that's part of an instinct to reach into some law some l-o-r-e you know to, to reach i i need story i need story for this i need stories of upheavals and phase shifts and to know how do we transition? What do we keep? What do we take with us? Well, I guess I have, you know, one last question for you, maybe to end this conversation that we're having. Um, and it is about the future, which you're talking about just now, and you've been talking about, and, and, and also the past. Because um, you, you, you wrote about the danger of idealizing the past or a mythical future. And that when we do so, we miss the chance to engage with right story in the present. That cultural longevity is important, 
But living cultures must always adapt to current contexts and remain fluid enough to allow for continual emergence, that no entity is immortal, that we have to change. We have to shift. Yeah, that's it. Well, I think you just said it. I don't know. Everybody longs for permanence. And, uh, yeah. What, what's ironic is that we did manage to maintain um, quite a bit of permanence, you know, for at least 10,000 years at a time, holding systems stable. You know, we went through like about two ice ages, two, maybe three ice ages here in Australia. You know, we, we've seen big, massive climate shifts and and different shifts all over. And, and you know, like Victoria here where I am, that's that's an incredibly volatile landscape. There's, there's been volcanic activity that's just devastated and disrupted everything here for as long as there's been humans here. You know, Victorian Kuris are like the most adaptive um most weirdly innovative people on the on the continent you know simply because of the constant upheaval of their environment you know uh in Coranda and in and Cairns you know in in far north Queensland there that, that landscape's only 10,000 years old because it got bloody um it was a massive volcanic eruption there that just completely changed the whole landscape you know so we have these we have these these disruptions happen but we maintain, ironically, the most you know stable uh, situations you know in landscapes, uh, for, in the central desert, for example, and in many places. And ten thousand years is pretty freaking long to maintain a system exactly the same. You know, mm -hmm. we stabilize these landscapes and climates, and then we hold them as long as we can. But ironically, that means that we have to be moving around on it seasonally, so we're not sitting in permanent mm -hmm. sedentary, you know. Uh, communities and built environments uh that's the thing but where we're establishing a permanence is in the stability of our climate and and, and bioregion but that's only ever as good as your neighbors <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> so make friends with your neighbors make sure you marry your neighbors and like you adopt your kids across uh, it's the only way to sort of stop them from fucking everything up because yeah, the guy up the creek from you is, um, if he's shitting in the water, then uh, <laughs> your kids are going to get sick. <laughs> Tyson, it's been great chatting with you today. No worries, man. of Calliopeia Foundation. Our original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by Logan Stanley and H. Scott Salinas. This podcast is edited by Erica Neininger and produced by Shauna Quinn and Emmanuel Von Lee, with writing by Lucy Warmald. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter, Order our new print edition and check out more of our stories. Visit emergencemagazine.org.